0: Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry, And this season we'll be focusing on 80s films. It's not my most beloved era for movies. I think the 80s was full of high concept movies and the start of not doing authentic movies. However, that being said, it's still quite an important decade for cinema. If you're not familiar with that term, high concept, it essentially means movies that are sort of pitched to studios with an attractive premise... With extensive demands from audiences rather than uh, low concept movies, which focuses more on like complex character development, the use of the camera, and uh, other artistic strengths. A simple way of kind of separating the two types of concepts is saying that high concept movies are what if movies. So, for example, um, what if we travelled back in time, or what if we cloned dinosaurs, or what if we made gremlins real? You know, that's sort of the idea what I mean by the 80s was full of high concept movies, although. One of my examples, um, what if we clone dinosaurs, Jurassic Park, is sort of flawed in that because it does actually focus on character development, so it's kind of a low-concept movie, and it wasn't in the 80s, but hopefully you get what I'm saying. The 80s was the beginning of franchises, hence why I was talking about authenticity earlier. It, however, it was also revolutionary in terms of taking the next steps. One example being in nudity was he- heavily expanded in decade. It was such a milestone for certain genres like horror, action, sci-fi, more renowned the teen high school genre, which was practically born in this decade. If you look at the films that came out in this decade that spawned sequels like Gremlins, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Star Wars, Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, it was swarming with these high concept movies that overflowed even into the 90s and even past the millenniums with sequels, remakes and even prequels. If you look at the top 10 highest grossing films of the 80s, nine of them are sequels of the or the start of a sequel. The only one that isn't is shockingly the one at number one. And that was E.T., which was a milestone in Steven Spielberg's career. Although he seemed to have a lot of milestones with Jaws and then Jurassic Park and then Saving Private Ryan, and it kept going on. But I'm not here to talk about E.T. today, nor am I here to talk about Steven Spielberg. I'm, however, shall open up episode one with an unexpected 1988 Christmas classic in the name of Die Hard. Directed by John Materan and starring Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia and the late Alan Rickman. The justification of why this film has become so popular is down to so many reasons. Nonetheless, if you look at this film on paper, it's so simple. I mean, it's almost too simple. Terrorist or thieves hijack, building, cop hidden away and fights them off one by one. That is pretty much the whole plot of Die Hard. So why do people remember this film? Why does this action film trump the others? Why was this film such a stepping stone for Bruce Willis and for action movies in general? Well... Originally, the idea came from a novel, believe it or not. It was called Nothing Lasts Forever, and Clint Eastwood owned the rights to it. And he was, he was even going to do a film about it in the early 80s, but I think he did something else in the end, and then he sold the rights off. I think it was to Joel Silver, who was the producer of this film. It was then adapted into a screenplay which went through like 30 different drafts. Now the novel is nothing like the movie. I think originally in the novel it was over the space of three days that this hijacking happens. But the director, John Materian, um was like, well, no, I think why don't we do it over one night? Because he was quite a big fan of uh, William Shakespeare's *Midsummer's Night Dream. And, of course, that happens over a space of a day. And he just thought it makes it more tense and realistic having it over the course of one day. So that's just one difference. There are other ones like in the book, the cop is visiting his daughter not his wife, and the villains in the novels are terrorists. But that was changed again by John Materian because it was being released in the summer. He wanted it to be a little less dramatic and a bit light-hearted, so it made them just extravagant thieves, which we don't actually find out till the end. The book itself is quite dark though, and it's a bit more raw because his daughter actually dies at the end, and John McLean is left permanently crippled at the end, which is why I think they have McLean go through hell in this movie to somewhat stay true to the, uh, the original novel which becomes like a recurring theme in the sequels like the damage this guy goes through is ridiculous and somewhat impacts realism in terms of McLean as he's always shown in pain in the second half of these films um, like from the glass to his feet to jumping off the building, like jumping out of a police car in the fourth movie, jumping off a bridge in the third movie, the second one he got chucked off a plane. You know, he isn't your typical action hero. He kind of humanizes action heroes, if anything, and that's part of the reason why I think he's so popular. And this sort of follows nicely to my next point, because John McTierran explained to the producer that this guy had to be a normal guy. John McClane isn't an action hero. John um, just directed um, Arnold Schwarzenegger the year before in Predator, to follow this action hero decade Arnie was going through in the 80s. He previously, I think he just played the Terminator in 84 or 82. And remember, Sylvester Stallone was also, he just played Rambo in that decade as well. So movies are really taking a step forward in these recognisable action heroes. So John McClane was something very different, and John McTiernan wanted to do something different with him. Now, studios originally wanted uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role of John McClane, but the director insisted, no, this guy has to be your average guy, and he came across... Uh, Bruce Willis, I think he was watching Moonlighting. And he said, okay, this guy could, you know, he seems quite average. He's he's doing comedies at the moment, um, but, you know, he's not really well-known for action movies. And John Materan saw that sort of grit and toughness in Bruce, but also that quirky side from his performances in films like Sunset and the TV show Moonlighting. So the producers agreed and they hired Bruce Willis, this sort of unknown actor at the time. More women knew him than men because he did, like, earlier comedy roles. Now, because this movie was going through, like, hundreds of rewrites throughout filming. A lot of the lines, especially Bruce Willis's lines, were improvised by him, and this is what adds this sort of charm to John McLean, this normal jokey persona of this hero. He made sure that John McClane was an unconventional hero just by being a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time, which becomes a sort of thing in the sequels. He was just a guy who had no choice but to save them, and this is what makes him likable and slightly realistic, which I'll talk about later. John Materan decided John was just a man who didn't even like himself that much but just doing the best he can with a bad situation. Now, originally, Bruce Willis was on the poster when this film was released, but audiences had no idea who this guy was, and people were laughing when the trailer was released to see this comedy actor being shown in this action movie, and they were therefore had to remove him from the main poster. And it wasn't until the film was released, and it was like two weeks in, and it was doing amazing, it was smashing weekend records and everything, they stuck his face back on the poster because most of the people were giving positive reviews mainly about Bruce Willis and how good he was in this And they stuck his face back in. They added more scenes of him in the trailer. And once word got out that this film was doing really well, it was smashing the box office. It made $150 worldwide. It was a kickstart to the career of Bruce Willis. And he received, at the time, an unheard fee of $5 million, which was approved by the president of Fox at the time, which was um, Rupert Murdoch, who, by the way, was a massive fan of this movie. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, our characters. I'm going to talk about the villain first off, Hans Gruber. Now, Hans Gruber had to be casted perfectly, and they chose a stage actor who had never worked on a film in his life. This would therefore be Alan Rickman's debut, and who knew that his movie career would start properly at the age of 41? Now, the director, John Materon, saw Alan Rickman performing in London, and two days after Alan Rickman moved to L.A., he was actually offered the part. He actually didn't accept the role, because he didn't like the fact that he was playing a villain to his first ever film, and didn't want the part. He didn't want this sort of stereotype, typecast role to follow him in Hollywood. And however, to a degree, Alan Rickman was right, because his performance as Hans Gruber goes down as one of the best villains In cinema history and therefore it did in fact give him that sort of bad guy type Stereocast in later films It was quite the introduction to filmmaking for Alan Rickman because his first day on set he filmed a scene where um, Hans runs into John McClane and he jumps off a ledge later in that scene and it's about a couple of feet high this ledge and he injured himself tearing his cartilage in his knee. Now medical team on the set told him that he can't put any weight on that leg and he had to be on crutches and this was the first day of filming so it comes to no surprise when you watch this movie that Hans is actually shot just standing or just sat down and if he's shot from the waist up he's in fact wearing a leg brace under his pants so it's not such a conventional beginning for alan rickman It's was a pretty good story to tell so if you ever watch uh die hard and look at hans Gruber, you can actually see the leg brace underneath his uh, his sort of trousers which is quite cool and speaking of that particular scene, actually, when Hans and John first meet, it was completely unrehearsed because that scene doesn't happen until much later in a film. And John Matera and the director wanted that sort of spontaneity between the two actors. So he only shot that scene once without informing the actors, catching the genuine responses from Alan and Bruce. And they were struggling before this scene was written because they needed a way to um, for Hans and John McClane to meet before the climax of the film because their whole communication in the movie or in the script as well was on radio. So they needed a way for them to, to sort of meet prior to the end. And the producers was on set one day, and I think they watched Alan Rickman. And he was goofing around, and he did an American accent for a joke. And it turns out he could do a pretty good accent. And it sprung an idea to him, and he was like, why didn't he just pretend to be a hostage or something? And then he wrote that scene in, and there you have it. the scene was born. And because of that scene, Alan Rickman tore his knee, uh, knee cartilage and had to wear a knee brace. But it's a pretty good scene, and it's a pretty good story to tell. So Hans Gruber, the leader or leader of this German unit, I mean, what's interesting is that half of the actors weren't even German. I think only three or four of them could actually speak German. The actors were mainly casted for their sort of stature and apparent uh, appearance rather than their nationalities. I read somewhere that nine of them were over six feet tall, which emphasizes again, you know, Bruce Willis's character because he's an average guy and Bruce just stands under 5'10". And another funny thing as well, that John McClane is being mocked in this movie for being this sort of cowboy American kind of stereotype by Alan Rickman's character, who's playing a German. But in reality, Bruce Willis is more German than most of the actors playing German. Bruce is actually half German and was born in West Germany in 1955. So I thought that was quite interesting. I think his mother is German and his dad's American. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting fact. So we have to talk a little bit about how this film has now fundamentally shaped action movies to date. I mean, this is the peak of it. I mean, John Materan single-handedly directed two of the best action movies back-to-back in Predator and then again in Die Hard. And they've got two completely different protagonists, two different heroes. Now, people have now used this terminology for saying Die Hard on a boat or Die Hard on a plane or Die Hard on a submarine or Die Hard on a bus, referencing, of course, to, you know, Under Siege, Con Air, Crimson Tide, uh, Speed, you know. Uh, actually here's, an, here's a really cool fact uh, the director of Speed was the cinematographer for Die Hard Yandy Bont uh, cinematographer is the guy who films the thing he's holding the camera he's in charge of the lighting and the the movement and Speed was his first film and during the filming of Die Hard um, Yandy Bont he got stuck in a lift which gave him the inspiration to do the opening scene in Speed so that's a pretty cool fact as well he later did um, Twister two years after that so he was a re- he was on a real really good role with his movies he sort of faded away though but what a debut! Two films he directed there was Speed and then Twister. But yeah, anyways, they, Die Hard sort of shaped the way of how action movies should be, and many others followed, creating a world of, you know, world of wind of action movies in the '90s, and an in inspiration of Die Hard. I mean, I mean, I'm just going to explore now why Die Hard is remembered and what makes certain character characters in this more attractive than other characters in action movies, and what they try to do here. I mean, so for me, the most interesting character in this film is is Hans Gruber, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. John McClane is who we follow and what makes him the perfect star in this event that happens in this building in turn helps him solve a more personal conflict. Now it's interesting when you deconstruct this movie because even action movies hold a certain degree of thought into the story and characters especially in Die Hard. Now if you look at John McClane we learn a lot from you know his limo ride of Argyle. He explains that Holly works in LA, and he lives—you know—he lives in New York, and it's difficult because they're, you know, so far apart from each other. She's basically chosen a career over a consistent marriage, and they're really, you know, it's really impossible to, you know, keep doing this. Now, you notice John clearly wants Holly to be with him physically, hence the amount of times he mentions New York in his exchange with Argyle. We believe, or we're led to believe, it's because it's his intentions to get her to come back with him to New York. He doesn't want to meet her halfway. He wants his marriage back. And we sort of understand that love isn't a problem, it's the distance. Already now, we've established this inner conflict, right? So John and Holly have this problem in their relationship. Now the movie opens with John on a plane so we already know he's out of his comfort zone here because he's literally not found his feet yet and it's portrayed quite cleverly that he's the elephant in the room by visually giving him the big teddy bear right at the start which makes him more visually, visually noticeable to reflect his metaphorical presence of being out of place in California. Now. We also know that he's been a cop and that he's been one for 10 years from his dialogue with the passenger when he says, trust me, I've been a cop for 11 years. Although he's mocking the other guy, he's also letting us know as the audience that he's trustworthy. We later confirm this by finding out that he's flown from New York to Los Angeles to meet his wife. So this guy cares. He makes the effort and we can kind of trust him. The strangeness of the environment that John goes through at the start of the movie sort of shows that, A, he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't know this place. It's unfamiliar territory. By being in a limo, by having a guy holding his name up at the airport, to seeing local Californians, to even working that piece of tech at the Nakatomi Plaza that he's not used to. And, B, this shows that he's going through the wars. He's willing to walk through hell to get his wife back. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable he is. He's going to do this trip. His approach, as passionate as it is, Turns Holly, you know, turns Holly away when they finally meet. We know that she still loves him because she turns down the, uh, you know, the the flirtation from her colleague. But she values her careers too. You know, her career is really important to her, and this is signified by Holly keeping her maiden name instead of taking his. She's part of this company now in a metaphorical sense as well. Now all of this is in the first twenty minutes of the film. We can figure this out in twenty minutes before any action. We have this. So now we know and understand this inner conflict of John McClane. As he starts to deconstruct physically when he takes his shoes off and his shirt, an outer conflict happens in the name of Hans Gruber and a hostage situation, which he manages to invade now, this in turn is now very clever in terms of the script because now this outer conflict has put Holly in danger. Because of that, she's, part, she's in danger because she's part of the company, remember? Remember, she's Gennaro. She's part of Nakatomi Plaza. So John has to now go through hell like he did by getting on the plane, going in the limo, using the tech. Only this time, this will be more of a test physically and mentally. By solving this outer conflict... He will then solve this inner conflict. And this is sort of symbolised by John McClane's passion and love to his wife. And again, this is physically shown in the damage and pain John McClane goes through in order to finally get Holly back from the hands of Hans at the end of the movie. John is barefoot and without a shirt. By the end of the movie, he's got no vest, he's got bandages, he's got blood, he's got glass on his feet. He has walked through pain to get Holly, just like he did at the start of the movie, for the initial inner conflict now hans of course loves material possessions and this movie he represents materialism and if you will represents what holly is holding on to money or her career if you will you know but but her by her being good at her job by her being there this has attracted robbers to hijack this place she's sort of now in charge of um of this whole situation now that nakatomi is dead so we now know that Hans loves material possession because he said he could discuss men's fashion all day, citing he has two John Phillips suits, and not to mention he's robbing the place of $650 million. And right at the end, what happens when he's falling out of the window? What does he grab? He grabs the Rolex on Holly's wrist, which shows that he's a man of greed and materialistic things. Even at the point of his demise, which is such one of the most famous scenes when he's falling out, He's still grabbing onto the material things. And what, did it, what does this sort of consequence lead uh, you know, do? It rips the Rolex of Holly's wrist, which symbolizes, of course, her freedom now from this material world that John has rescued her from by going through hell of this Nakatomi Tower. And this is later signified and confirmed by the start of Die Hard 2, where we see Holly on a plane, not John, which sort of gives the confirmation of his victory at the end of this movie. Now, in most action scripts or movies or origins, the main component in it is the villain. The story is usually about the reaction of the hero, not the story of the hero. Now, what I mean by that is we can take out John McClane and we would still have the same problem. We would have the hostages on the 30th floor. Then, you know, Officer Powell would then act as the main character. And if not him, then the FBI agent Johnson or the other one. And if we remove both of them, then maybe even Holly, as we now establish, is quite capable. She could probably take over. The only constant attribute to this action movie is Hans Gruber and his plan to rob Nakatomi Tower. This is what makes him the most interesting character. Because without him, John McClane's inner conflict wouldn't have happened... And you can assume their marriage may have even failed. If his his wife wasn't in the building, I don't even think John McClane would have saved that building. That's what makes him a relatable hero. The only reason he saves the building, even though he's a cop, is because he loves Holly. John McClane is just an average guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. He usually doesn't have a choice in any of the films. He's just reacting. Throughout the movie, John converses with Officer Powell and through that journey of getting to the Holly through the outer conflict caused by Hans, he comes to term with his sort of inner conflict through Officer Powell saying he's been quite difficult sometimes. He should have supported Holly. He should have been there for her. And through this realisation of solving his own inner conflict, he has the power to march on and take on Hans Gruber and once and for all solve both conflicts and defeat Hans Gruber. And more importantly... Get his wife back, and this is why for me this film is above all others in terms of action movies because he is not an action hero; he's a normal guy, and this is not even a story about him in terms of consistency. It's about a story about it's a story about Hans Gruber, and the story of Hans Gruber and his robbery is what unintentionally solves the problem for John McClane. Like I said earlier, you take away John McClane, the story still exists. You take away Hans, and there's no story. And what you what they did with the writing by giving John these problems, I think, makes him a terrific main lead. And there is no doubt those are the components for me that makes this probably one of the best action films ever made. Well, that's all I have time for with my first episode of Season 2. Sorry if I ranted, but I really wanted to get that message across. I think I said invaded instead of vaded when I said Bruce Willis managed to leave. But yeah, I meant vaded. But anyway, if you're going to ask me the question about this film being a Christmas movie... It goddamn well is, and it's the greatest Christmas movie ever made, despite what others say, including Bruce Willis. But yeah, follow my Instagram on Film Exploration, ah, or lowercase or one word for updates on uh, my upcoming podcast on the 80s and just general news. Um, all my podcasts are now available to stream on Spotify, iTunes, and Google. Um, so thank you very much for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry, and have a good day.